And welcome to McGuire Woods Edible Bites, where we bring you bite-sized updates on all things happening in the life sciences space, including cannabis, hemp, CBD, and other emerging markets. Our updates are quick and packed with key industry developments that you can watch during your morning coffee, while having lunch, or on a brain break. We're excited to discuss today's food for thought. Let's get noodling. Please remember that Edible Bites podcast is for informational food for thought purposes only. These updates should not be construed as legal advice in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Please be sure to consult with an attorney before being fearless with any legal decisions. In addition, we note marijuana and other controlled substances are classified as Schedule I by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. Any content contained or discussed herein is not intended to provide legal advice to assist with the violation of any state or federal law. Hi, and welcome to Edible Bites. I'm Kate Hardy with McGuire Woods, and I'm here with my trusted colleague, Royce Dubonnet. And today we're gonna to be talking about the ever fun topic, uh, clarifying tax code 280E and how it applies to the cannabis industry. And today we're really lucky to have with us an expert in this space. We've got Kevin Meichlin from Cone Resnick, and we're super excited to talk through a lot of the top issues that are on everybody's mind uh, the next 30 minutes or so. And Kevin, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you could just introduce yourself and say hi and tell us a little bit about you, that would be great. And then we'll get started. Great, thanks. Happy to be here. I'm Kevin Michael, and I'm a senior manager in Cone Resnick's transaction advisory services practice. And we primarily represent buyers and sellers and M&A transactions. For my part, I'm on the tax side. And so almost exclusively represent uh, the buy side. And that's from a tax structure and a tax diligence perspective, which for cannabis, I've been doing since the beginning of 2018, and we primarily do it for the public MSOs, but we also do it for financial sponsors, debt funds, and, and private MSOs. Great, thank you. And I know you've got really great depth of experience, so we're looking forward to this topic today. All right, so just to give a quick overview, um, today we're going to just give an overview of the code, what is it, we're going to talk about some of the cases that are out there and what those decisions mean or sort of where we've got um, some outstanding questions still. We're going to talk through a couple of hypothetical examples, uh, a little bit about some of the important tax code sections that you need to be aware of. Uh, we're gonna talk about tax compliance considerations. And then as usual, we will end our session today with food for thought for everybody moving forward. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, and Kevin, I am going to let you start for folks who are maybe not totally familiar with 280E, what it is. Could you please just give us a, a quick overview? Sure. So code section 280 CAPI is related to expenditures in connection with the legal sale of drugs. 
And it, like other sections of the code, is very short. It's in fact just one subsection which reads, and I quote, just because it's so short, that no deduction or credit shall be allowed for any amount paid or incurred during the taxable year in carrying on any trade or business if such trade or business or the activities which comprise such trade or business consist of trafficking in controlled substances within the meaning of Schedule 1 and 2 of the Controlled Substances Act, which is prohibited by federal law or the law of any state in which the of which such trade or business is conducted. So that was a very short code section. There's a lot in there uh, that has broad application uh, and specific application to the cannabis industry, or, or at least the cannabis industry that is still trafficking in marijuana. And I'm not talking about hemp-derived CBD, because with the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, it is no, it's been removed from the definition of marijuana uh, from the Controlled Substances Act. And, and marijuana is a control or is a Schedule One substance. So that's why 280E applies to the, you know, uh, to marijuana businesses. And what's in bold here is a number of items that case law has clarified over time. And, but I'll start off with just some key observations to provide some perspective as we start to talk about the case law and the implications of of the application of 280E. And that first one is that 280E is a disallowance of deductions and credits, and that's not limited to income tax. It also applies to payroll tax credits. So it's, um, it's more than one may think. Uh, second, and it's important from a economic perspective, is that because of the broad um, application of 280E uh, in denying deductions and credits, what it effectively means is that a, anyone subject to 280E is taxed on their gross income, but gross income is net of cost of goods sold. So said differently, you're effectively taxed on your, your gross profit. And so determining what your gross profit is becomes very important. Um, and a couple other things, or I guess really one, because we've already talked that, about that marijuana is a Schedule One substance, is that consists of and trafficking are not defined within the Internal Revenue Code, which has led to some confusion, which, you know, my belief it's been clarified through the case law, but that's an evolving uh, situation. Yeah, I, I agree there because the the term trafficking is within, it's found within criminal sentencing guidelines, found within the Controlled Substances Act, but the courts here have been really looking at trafficking unique to the, uh, the view within the, the tax court's jurisdiction. That's right. And so as we start to talk through some of the case law that we've uh, identified for this webcast, will you know, touch on those court cases that um, I think laid the precedent in what the tax court will, um, will decide on or interprets the, the meaning of those words, I should say. And so with that, uh, onto some select 280E case law. 
Um, what we have here is a comparison of some uh, our, you know, question mark taxpayer wins and IRS wins. And what you'll notice is that there's more IRS wins. And if we were actually to put all of the cannabis uh, case law on the scale, it would tip even further to the IRS. Um, and the reason for that, as I'll discuss, is that CHAMP is atypical. Uh, particularly today, CHAMP is not like the majority, if not all, cannabis companies. And so I think that requires a little background. So CHAMP is a uh, medical marijuana and caregiving provider. And they provided the, the caregiving service and the medical marijuana. They sold them uh, separately. They, the, the business actually was primarily involved in caregiving, unlike many businesses today. And some examples of why they were primarily a caregiver rather than a seller of marijuana is that more than half of their employees provided caregiving services. None of the employees did both. Um, the, of the three locations that they had, only one actually sold marijuana and that represented 10% of the total of, the, of that location's physical space. And if you think about cannabis companies today, um, that's really far, is very different. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising that the court determined that their primary trader business was caregiving. And that's important because a lot of the, uh, the case law after that, taxpayers would argue that they had one or more trader business. And that trader business that was not the sale of marijuana was not subject to ADE. So I, the, I guess the takeaway there is that the court followed precedent that a taxpayer may have one or more trader business, but meeting that hurdle for today's cannabis companies is a remote likelihood. Um, second, they also set some precedent that trafficking is to be given its most used meaning or gerund meaning, and that or means 280 applies as long as marijuana is a Schedule One or Two substance. So it doesn't matter that it's not or that it's legal for for state law purposes. As long as the federal government uh, continues to schedule, you know, treat it as Schedule One or Two substance, 280 will apply. Yeah. And, and I, I think, uh, oh, go ahead, please, Kevin. Yeah, so the last point there, and I think I've been alluding to, is that CHAMP, is it really relevant to today's cannabis business given that the primary trader business is the sale of marijuana? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, CHAMP, what, what we've told clients is to, you know, think about the early world of what marijuana looked like in California. It was a very different world in 2007 than the complex multi-state operations that we have today. Um, I, I believe in Champ, and I might be wrong, that they actually had a movie night or like a facility that was for movie nights and stuff. It was completely separate from the dispensary op and uh, if you also look at CHAMP, that's a, that's a 2007 case. And since CHAMP, we've seen 
more advanced cases that deal with a more contemporary time period as states have become more sophisticated in regulation, as the industry has become more sophisticated, and not necessarily this original intention of caregivers, small grassroots, uh, local cannabis. It's morphed into a, a much different animal. And I'll put it uh, simply, you know, in my experience, all the work that I do, no company looks remotely like Champ uh, because nobody would pay that kind of money for a company that operated like Champ. Well, I feel like in some of the later cases where people were trying to make some differenti differenti differentiation, um, you know, if they're selling T-shirts or vape, you know, they're not totally direct and they're saying, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's completely separate. It has nothing to, to do with the cannabis business. But I think that's sort of where you're talking about some of this like merging and it's, it's a different environment today that, you know, folks need to be thinking about a little bit more. It's not as black and white. That's right. Um, and so some of the cases that, uh, you know, that we have here, um, you know, or point to uh, what you're referring to, which is that Olive, which is a 2012 case, and Canicare, another 2015 case, both of those sold medical marijuana uh, because a lot of cases will be or will discuss prior tax years. Uh, so this is not that it was discussing their business in 2012, their business in 2015, We're talking many years earlier, but and the point being medical marijuana at the time was, the, and it's still, I guess, is the primary uh, legalized uh, form of marijuana uh, as we continue to get more and more adult use. Uh, but the point there is that we're still having uh, deal with medical marijuana and where the court has, unlike CHAMP, determined that these businesses, their primary purpose and sole trader business mm -hmm. is the provision of marijuana. And so without a more than one trader business, there's no, arguably there's no room to argue that the other activities are not subject to 280E because that is kind of the, the threshold is, do you have one or more trader business? And if you don't, and that single trader business, it includes trafficking in marijuana, then you're going to be subject to 280E. And that's what the uh, IRS argued, and that's what the U.S. tax court agreed with. And just two differences, I guess, between, we'll start with Olive. What made Olive different in a number of ways um, was that they bundled the price of the caregiving service with the sale of marijuana. So that wasn't really a, a great argument. But mm -hmm. then, you, then you have Canicare, who separated the price, uh, but that still wasn't enough because you have to look at the whether the sale of those other products are incident and necessary to the uh, primary purpose, which is the sale of marijuana. Right. Um, so, yeah, and then that kind of brings us, you know, I guess we'll get into these other two cases and you could really dive into um, these other cases and I'd love to, but we just don't have time. Um, what's important about Harborside is that Harborside um, set precedent in this, and I think in the sense that they most thoroughly analyzed was what does consist of mean? And consist of means is, is the non-exhaustive list rather than the exhaustive list. Right. Uh, 
Um, and alternative management is really the court case that is alternative healthcare advocates at all against the commissioner. It involved two separate legal entities and two separate taxpayers that were um, really uh, were related parties. And in a, in a sense, they said that our unified business, although because it's separate and one of those businesses does not have a license, uh, is not subject to 280E. And the court was unwilling to take that, uh, to agree with that position because of lack of authority to do so. So what they did and what we see is that companies will you know, create one entity for the license holding entity, a management company. And what we had here is this management company did all of the activity for the licensed entity, which at the time they were non-for-profits. And so there were legitimate business reasons for these. Mm -hmm. um, but this court case is a really a warning sign or cautionary tale to those thinking about taking a unified business, uh, creating a number of entities and saying those entities that don't, you know, air quotes, touch the plant or have the license aren't going to be subject to 280E. I think this case would remind you that the IRS and the tax court may likely disagree with you. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about some transaction considerations. I mean, that's not really a 280 E type thing, but I think people, when they're thinking about structure, to your point, you know, you might you might actually not be helping yourself a whole lot, and this piece of the analysis should carry through to however you're setting up the business. That's right. All right. Well, I think on the next slide, um, we have got some examples where we can sort of talk through. Um, how does this actually play out? Like, what, is it, what does it look like from a money perspective? Because it can actually have a pretty big impact um, on what you would owe for taxes. Yes, and, and you can see the reason why uh, businesses will, will be looking for structuring you know, solutions and, and taking other aggressive positions and so, and we'll talk more about this later, but the uh, tax inspector, um, General for Tax Administration, TIGTA, they put out a report in March of 2020. And in that report, there was a hypothetical example of the impact of 280E. And that and this is pre the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, short here for TCJA. Um, because in the context of a corporate entity and, and really other taxpayers, tax rates changed. And for corporations, it went from, you know, generally a flat 34, 35% to 21. Well, it wasn't a flat, it was a graduated uh, prior to that. And now it's a flat 21%. And so in this example, what you see is they showed that gross income of or sales of half a million dollars, cost of goods sold of $250,000, giving you a gross profit of $250,000, but there's also business expenses, right? Typically what you think of uh, SG&A, selling general administrative costs or OPEX, operating expenses. And in this example, it was $150,000, leaving the business with net income before income taxes of $100,000. Now, when computing your, your taxable income, because 280E disallows 
deductions other than those that are properly includable in cost of goods sold, you have this add back of your business expenses. And so bringing your taxable income back up to your gross profit. So at that time with where tax rates were, um, the federal corporate income tax was approximately $81,000. And so that's an effective tax rate of 81%. I mean, that's unheard of. And what's probably even more important from an economic perspective is that the after-tax corporate profit was approximately 4%. So this is before the impact of state income taxes. And you know, some states conform with 280E, meaning that they apply it as well and deny those business expenses. Yeah. You have other states that, that don't. But let's just say or assume by even if the state does conform with federal section 280E, a state income tax rate of approximately 4% or more would cause a profitable business to be unprofitable. So, you know, that should give everybody pause. Yeah, practically speaking, what, it, what does that look like for, you know, I guess in lay terms, it's, I just did a lot of research and development into a new Shatter product. The product didn't sell. I can't recoup that cost. I've got a bunch of product that's just sitting doing nothing, and I'm still getting taxed at this rate. Whereas if I was a normal business, I would probably be able to work that into a deduction. Yes, yeah, so there are a couple of things there. Um, without getting too deep into them, um, one is if you haven't sold the inventory, then you don't have cost of goods sold to recover. Um, second is that research and experimental expenditures, which is more of a tax-specific term, um, but it denotes the same thing as R&D. Um, is not includable in cost of goods sold um, under the regulations that the IRS um, will be, you know, if you're audited, will tell you you need to follow if you're a producer. And that's probably a good segue into um, the next slide, which talks about the IRS's position on or, or how to determine cost of goods sold. Yeah, and before we get into this, I'll, I'll just sort of reiterate, I think, something you said before, um, you know, since we do do a lot of transaction work, if you're talking to a company and you're in these early stages, I think it's really important to be asking some of these kind of questions where you're digging into this a little bit so you don't have a surprise down the road of, oh, all these profits we thought that we had actually maybe aren't quite what, they, what we thought we were because we owe more money because <laughs> uh, we weren't doing this right. So I, mean, I, think, I think that's a really, really important thing um, to keep in mind. Yeah, and, I, and we're gonna tie that all together at the end because we've seen uh, distressed asset deals because of income tax liabilities. So it's a really, uh, it's important to pay attention to the, the impact and to take proper action. Yep. So in 2015, the, the IRS uh, Chief Counsel um, put out a, their um, interpretation of how cost of goods sold is to be determined uh, if you're subject to 280E. And in short, 
they said that it is to be determined under the law at the time that 280E was enacted, uh, rather than I would say more current um, inventory accounting rules. And they also said that if you're a reseller, then the what's includable in cost of goods sold is, is limited to the purchase price and the cost of acquiring inventory. And that's just based on the regulations that have been around for a long time. Um, if you're a producer, and so let me just maybe quickly talk about reseller because those court cases involved the taxpayers saying that they were a producer rather than a, a reseller because there's more uh, costs that are includable for a producer. Mm-hmm. A reseller, very simply, is, is a dispensary. It is a, uh, let's say it's a wholesaler, uh, somebody who just buys finished product and then resells it. So that would be a reseller. Um, a producer would be a business that is cultivating or producing infused cannabis products. Yeah. Um, and so for a producer, it's determined under the regulations for manufacturers, which basically says you're going to include your direct and indirect cost as long as it's incident and necessary for production. And, and I kind of alluded to this, um, neither resellers or producers may include additional inventoryable cost under code section 263 cap A, which was enacted after 280E was enacted. And, and there's, there's good rationale for that, not because it was enacted after the fact, but that the flush language in 263A uh, makes it clear that it's a timing provision and not a provision that would allow one to capitalize and deduct an otherwise non-deductible expense. Great. No, that has a lot more bearing today uh, as a result of the TCJA, or to say it's caused some confusion, um, and, and we'll get that in a little bit. Okay. No, and I thank you for the, the clarification on, you know, resellers and producers. I, I know I'm tying this all back to transactions a lot, but same thing. Um, you really need to make sure you understand the type, one that the business understands and is operating you know, from a 280E perspective, like they're supposed to, but that you also understand, uh, you know, where the business is going to fall um, from this perspective. Absolutely. Great. Let me, um, on this this next slide, to Texas make my, <laughs> my head uh, spin, but um, this is a more uh, recent report on um, you know, what to expect from tax compliance. What can we learn from this? Yeah, I think this is a really good one because I think you know, you've mentioned to me and I've heard others say or talk about the quote unquote audit lottery that the IRS doesn't uh, you know, have a lot of resources. They end up auditing only 1% of taxpayers every year. Um, I think this report helps put some things in per- perspective and give a uh, better understanding. And the report that was published in March of 2020, uh, I believe the, the headline is what is in the uh, subtitle here is that the growth of the marijuana industry warrants increased tax compliance efforts and additional guidance. Uh, increased tax compliance efforts, the IRS uh, definitely agreed with. Now, additional guidance, they really kind of punted on that. 
uh, in part because they said they had other uh, priority guidance. And But I'll start with this. There, there's some important takeaways from it and with respect to that point about the audit lottery. It's that they um, identified that marijuana businesses are a high risk area for, for non-compliance. And those in that in the amount of non-compliance is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, just looking at a few states and for the year of 2016. So the three states were Washington, Colorado, no, I'm sorry, Washington, Oregon, and California. So right yeah. there on the West Coast. And it was just for 2016. And then they just extrapolated that over five years and came up with hundreds of million dollars of assessments that they could go after um, just based on 280E, or should I say not properly applying 280E, and also not properly reporting gross income, which, you know, it's kind of a, a simple one, you know, it's, but that's neither here or there. Um, now, I think we can all agree that the IRS uh, does lack in its guidance with respect to 280, uh, and particularly the uncertain impact with 471C that was enacted as part of the, the TCJA, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but to, can, to summarize it here, it's that the, or say this report, is that taxpayers in the cannabis industry should expect to see more enforcement. In fact, we've seen it already. Um, and so if somebody's telling you to play the audit lottery in the cannabis industry, um, that, I, I think that's a red flag, not just uh, for the cannabis industry, but really anytime. Well, to your point as well, I mean, the number of states that have come on since 2016 with the medical program, and now we're seeing, you know, just wreck, proliferate. Uh, it's hard to keep up with, you know, how quickly the states are passing things. I mean, there's probably a lot more money that's out there and going to be out there. But can you maybe just give a little bit of insight as to what, what to expect for a 280E audit? I mean, if, if to your point, you know, if someone's telling you to play the lottery, that's probably not a good idea. Are you able to, you know, just give a few examples of sort of how those go? Um, you know, I'm sure they're time consuming. It's going to detract from the business. It's really not something that you. Yeah, sure. Um, it's probably, it's similar to what I do in diligence, but uh, an IRS audit is more in depth. They're gonna look for substantiation of amounts, whereas I'm not gonna dig that deep. You know, diligence isn't an audit. Um, but what I do is, is very similar in the sense that, uh, and you can even tell based on the face of the tax return, whether they're compliant or not. Um, and so what they'll look at is, and maybe this is kind of a um, jumping ahead, but you know, financial sponsors will ask me, you know, what's a back of the napkin uh, way to determine if this company that I'm considering investing in or buying in is compliant with 280E? And I think it's, you know, I, I say to them, well, back of the napkin would be take their gross profit, multiply that by the effective combined federal and state rate and where they operate. And if you've got, depending on that variance, that's going to tell you where, or I say that amount compared to what they're reporting as income tax expense 
will give you a sense of what the potential tax exposure is uh, or income tax exposure for that matter. So that would be, um, you know, what I would say when it comes to when they're thinking about uh, IRS audits. Um, the IRS would do the same thing and they'll, you know, take a similar approach, which is, you know, if you're going to include things that are not, um, if you're a reseller and you're including things that are more than the invoice price paid mm-hmm. and the cost of acquiring the inventory, you can expect them to disallow it. Right. And that's not helpful. <laughs> uh, there's been there's been a couple out there where people have ended up owing significant amounts of money. Uh, it's not small dollars. That if I'm a small dispensary and, uh, you know, I had my, my 280E analysis done by my aunt or my uncle, <laughs> and now I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, oh, man, I probably should really think about that again. Realistically, what's the liability look like there? You know, is it, is it an actual threat? Should they be, you know, maybe I should pay the big bucks to get someone to look at this a little bit more closely? Yeah, you probably don't want to start with your uncle or on, especially if they're not a tax advisor. Um, but in terms of that, that liability, it can be quite substantial. So as an example, um, if we're asked to calculate, let's say, a you know, more of a maximum potential exposure for a client as part of diligence, which would be generally the, and that's not really the, the maximum, we'll do like a, the statute of limitations, which is generally three years for federal income tax. Uh, we'll calculate it for that period, meaning if you had like a liability of a million dollars and you took positions that were, that didn't have a reasonable basis and you couldn't support or didn't have substantial authority and you had an understatement or a substantial understatement of tax, the IRS will hit you with an addition to late filing, or I'm sorry, late payment penalties, interest, a 20% accuracy related penalty. And as a rule of thumb, if you do that calculation for the three year period, it's about 70% of the assessment. So in my example, if, you're, if you've underpaid by a million dollars, your liability is now $1.7 million. So, that's pretty significant, um, in, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what is, I think, different from cannabis, or I know is different from cannabis than, than other industries that we do deals for, is that federal income tax is not the same issue. You know, so, and especially the, the degree of it um, in, in the overall tax diligence. Yes. All right. Well, again, lots, lots and lots of uh, numbers to make sure you're, you're running um, in the beginning and also making sure you're talking to people who really understand um, the impact and, and how, how this should be looked at. Absolutely. And then, and so part of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the TCGA, was the enactment of code section 471C. So 471 covers inventory accounting for tax purposes. And it added subsection C as an alternative uh, for small businesses to simplify inventory accounting. And it's effective for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2017. So it's really for the almost all companies or taxpayers 
it's for 2018 and forward. And in, in general, you're, you're eligible for the use of these alternative methods if you meet the gross receipts test, which is if your average annual gross receipts for the prior three tax years don't exceed a threshold amount that's adjusted annually for inflation. And for the most recent uh, two tax years, which is 2019 and 2020, plus also 2021, which we're in now, that threshold's $26 million. Um, so if you meet that, so if you're like a smaller or early stage cannabis company, uh, it's likely or, or you may meet this gross receipts exception and you may be able to use the uh, 471C alternative inventory accounting methods and of which there are, are three. Uh, one is what's called the non-incidental materials and supplies method. Uh, it really just says that you are, if you're a reseller, you're just capitalizing your, or, or treating as cost of goods sold, the, the cost, the direct cost of the, of the, uh, the product that you resell. So it's really not that different from before um, and without really kind of getting into those nuances. Mm -hmm. And the other one is a financial statement conformity method. And, and there are two. So if you have what's called an applicable financial statement, which is really an audited financial statement that is um, done in accordance with, um, let's say, GAAP or some similar uh, accounting standard that's equal to or more um, comprehensive than GAAP like IFRS, then that would be a applicable financial statement. And so you would conform to the inventory or the cost of goods sold effectively that you would report, that would be your taxable income because again, you're taxing your gross profit. Now, if you don't have an applicable financial statement, then you can use your books or records. And so this, you know, when this first came out was thought as some panacea to 280E and as the regulations, um, which we'll get into, have been, have been finalized and as were proposed, made it clear that it is not a panacea. That's important. <laughs> uh, it is because there's a lot of misunderstanding that 471C is a panacea. And I don't think many have taken the time to read the regulations, which uh, would be sufficient. And not even and most don't ever read the preamble, which is the background mm -hmm. to the regulations. But like I said, in this case, you don't have to because they made it very clear in the regulations uh, what they intended. So if we, so, but let's take uh, a look at the next slide, which what if, you know, to, uh, 471C was a panacea? Mm -hmm. And here we have is a side-by-side -side comparison. And this is also in the um, TIGTA's report. Uh, which they pointed out why they believe this needed guidance is that we have case B, which is after, so 2018, when the corporate rates are now at 21%, and that says no change in the way that you determine cost of goods sold. And case C was if you use 471C to effectively bring all of your business expenses into cost of goods sold, which would result in the company recognizing, this kind of seems, okay, right. Um, a gross or gross profit 
of $250,000 because of the additional $250,000 of business expenses that have been moved into costs. And as a result, the, the differential in corporate tax is about half. I mean, it's because of the numbers that are used, which is why it's that case. So one would look at that and go, great, you know, let me, let me take that position. And, you know, I guess it's understandable to take that position uh, based on the black letter law that's in 471C. But I think it just also would fail to uh, reflect the intention of 471C, which the regulations clarify. Makes sense. Makes sense. It's a big money difference, uh, but again, I think something you you should put on your diligence list and your checklist to make sure that it's actually being followed the right way. Absolutely. And so this next slide uh, actually provides uh, in part the, the language from 471C and what I was referring to in, in that when somebody were just to read the code, um, the statute, uh, that the taxpayer's method of accounting for inventory for such taxable year shall not be treated as fairly or as failing to clearly reflect income. So it was that that I've seen taxpayers take the position, well, it's right there in, you know, code section right there. Well, like I said, it's failing to account for a number of things. And now that the regs have been finalized, um, they included, well, in the proposed regs, they also had this as well. So the final regs didn't change this. This was at the same time. Um, and what I what's bolded here is that finally, nothing in code section 471C permits the deduction or recovery of any cost that a taxpayer is otherwise precluded from deducting or recovering under any other provision in the code or the regulations. So I think this combined with the IRS's comment in the TIGTA report, uh, which is they were silent on this, plus the fact that they have, you know, in uh, informally provided public uh, comment. So one was a uh, CLE event back um, around this time and uh, just other discussions with the IRS is that they do not believe that, and I think this uh, regulation makes it clear that if you're a cannabis company and you're going to try and use KC as your approach to determine cost of goods sold, you, you're going to find that the IRS disagrees with you. Which also will cost more money and, and not be particularly fun. Um, That's right. Okay. And so, so in the case of a transaction, um, which is, you know, where, where I, which is my field, um, what we've seen over time. Um, so, you know, I've done, you know, probably about 60 deals that encompass probably more than $5 billion in deal value. We have seen both public companies to financial sponsors to really everybody who, who are no longer willing to risk share when it comes to 280E. And that's meaningful because at that example that I pointed out, um, they're asking us to calculate what is that exposure for the three-year period. Right. And that's a lot of money that is held up in escrow or in fact, more likely is a negotiation point that if the buyer is unwilling to risk share, 
um, you're going to have to either put that in escrow or it could be the end of the deal. And so unfortunately, I have seen uh, 280E be the reason a deal doesn't close. Yeah. And practically, you know, let's just go, Kevin, you get your data room access. It looks good. Where are you first going in the data room? What's going to get you comfortable in the first 30 minutes or hour of exploring in there to say, you know what, maybe this this target is actually doing 280E properly? You know, what... I'm just trying to think on the sell side, what is a seller going to have to do to make you happy in 30 minutes? Well, then you'd be asking to give away my secret sauce. Um, oh, okay. No, I would just uh, level, get back then. to the, the back of the napkin approach that I yeah. tell to financial sponsors. And, um, but because there's a lot of things, some things aren't really material. But like I said, um, there's a schedule as part of the federal income tax return that shows how you calculate cost of goods sold. It doesn't give you the details, but uh, even page one of the return. So I'll put it this way. If you're claiming deductions below cost of goods sold, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm. yeah, excellent. Any pro tip I'm sure is well welcomed by the, the <laughs> sellers out there. <laughs> and everybody doing their diligence. Um, what just you talked a little bit about seeing 280E be the reason maybe a deal didn't go through before we kind of wrap up and and talk about the highlights. Have you seen any deals where people were other than the big escrow and everything else, like any other remediation or you know, it worked out because we were able to figure something out? I'm just kind of wondering if you have any sort of middle of the road stories where maybe it didn't look so great to start out with, but you were able to work it out. If escrow is the only way, then maybe that's it, or you know, less money that's being paid out. But just kind of curious as to what else you've seen. Well, as time has gone on, as I mentioned, the, the buyers are less willing to risk share. Um, so in those earlier years, they were willing to risk share. So, and I think it, it would depend on the sellers. I would say credibility in the sense that if you're going to rely on an indemnification, they're going to have to get comfortable that if they need to rely on the indemnification, that you're going to be able to pay yeah. in the event that um, that money comes due. Makes sense. Thank you. Because we like it when the deal works out <laughs> after everybody started. So. Yeah. And I don't go in there with any intention to being the, the bad guy. Right, right. No, we definitely, we, we all try not to do that. But, uh, you know, sometimes these hurdles are a little bit tough to, to get over, especially when you're talking about, you know, in this instance, potentially millions of dollars that maybe you didn't realize uh, you owed to the piper. Right. So... We've covered a, quite a bit of information today, and I think it's been extremely helpful to hopefully, you know, just lay out for folks who are interested in this topic or want to better understand how it might impact a transaction. Um, let's just touch on a couple of things. Like for current businesses, um, you know, what are some things to be thinking about now for just operations or if they're maybe looking down the road and they want to sell in the future, you know, what are some, excuse me, current business impacts that we could give everybody to take away? 
Sure. I would say that structure is very important, um, especially if you're going into um, structuring considerations or, or tax considerations for your structure. And although we didn't dive into it uh, probably deeply enough, but creating a structure in which you're looking to move costs to non-plan touching entities to get a deduction, got to be very careful with that because that case that I briefly touched on, they were effectively taxed on their revenue. Um, so you created phantom income. And this is a, maybe a good reminder is that taxpayers are bound by the form of their transactions. The IRS is not. That, yes. Um, the one thing that, you know, as part of TCJ uh, made the question of whether you want to be taxed as a C corporation or as mm -hmm. a flow through entity, um, yeah. it really changed those economics. Um, now, depending on, because before that, with the corporate where it was, um, depending on the uh, business's uh, intention of reinvesting profits and distributing profits, um, there really is kind of a break-even point in terms of which one makes sense. And I think for growth companies who intend to, um, I'd say, reinvest their profits because of the lower corporate tax rate, it's generally a good idea. Um, there's other factors to consider because with flow-throughs, we have the 199 cap A deduction or the qualified business income deduction to consider um, in terms of that impact on cash flow. Um, but, you know, with the, and then there's also the potential that tax rates go up under the Biden administration. So there's, if, but if you're already in business, you've already made that decision, uh, whether you're going to be a tax as a C corporation or flow through. Um, I think it really, for me, I think the best thing would be that since you already have your structure in place, be very, um, give it a lot of thought to 471C. Um, in terms of what you're really able to do there. And I didn't really dive into a lot of other nuances in there, but the point is that the IRS is going to continue to audit um, or have a you know, focus of audits on cannabis companies is not going to take the position that 471C allows you to bring more things into COGS uh, that the you know, chief counsel advice back in 2015 said you need to follow. Um, I just would be very, uh, give a lot of consideration to that. And also just uh, other normal tax rules. Um, I also see a lot of issues with employment tax, sales tax, um, you know, excise taxes. I mean, the, the non-income taxes that are traditionally the biggest issue in non-cannabis deals also mm -hmm. exist in cannabis. So just one more layer. Yeah, Roy Royce and I are not tax lawyers, but that's always a big topic of discussion in a transaction anyway. And this is just a whole lot more that you have to consider on top of it. Yeah. And I think it's clear from this that the, the story of 280E is far from over. And, you know, to be wary of the practitioner telling you that it's an it's a open and shut book on how to operate. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll see more. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, the audience, uh, you know, if they're engaging with, you know, tax counsel and they say things that are contrary to this, I think they should be red flags and should really have a thorough conversation of the tax advisor's uh, rationale for um, taking those positions.
Because I think some of it uh, or a lot of it has to do with just people in business who are relying on their tax professional who hasn't, I think, fully fully understands the tax law in and out of 280. Well, you know, I think on this one, I mean, just I'm looking at the transaction considerations. You know, I feel like in transactions, a lot of times you'll have a, you know, mom and pop business, small business. There's there's definitely some of those in this space. And a lot of times everyone will sort of give that a pass, you know, they didn't know, but, but in this, the 280E compliance, it feels a lot heavier. It feels a lot um, like more to deal with, um, you know, than just kind of some of the other general tax or other things that we, we see in the transaction space. Yeah, I guess I don't, um, you know, mom and pop deals, may, I've done a few, um, generally, you know, much larger companies and the excuse of not understanding 280 or know that exists. Um, the IRS has it on their website now. So, you know, and even if it didn't have it on the website, the IRS in an audit and, and the tax court, they're not going to be sympathetic. Yeah, well, good point, because a lot of times maybe people think that they they are. And so, yeah, maybe the last thing I guess I would say about transaction considerations is that, you know, the, the language that's used in terms of that indemnification, you can expect that language to be for losses and not taxes. So losses being a more comprehensive mm-hmm. um, terminology that would be, for example, the, the buyer now needs to deal with the audit uh, in some form or, or fashion with their legal counsel, maybe their tax advisor. They're going to look to recover those costs as well. Also adding to the tab. On that's that. right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been just awesome to talk to you and super educational. And I'm sure everybody's going to get a lot out of this. And uh, I'm putting up this last slide here uh, with your contact information. Uh, You mentioned at the beginning, you've been doing this a long time and you've done uh, a lot of different deals and transactions. So you would be a great expert Uh, to contact for anybody who's in the space or needs help with anything on the 280E side in the cannabis space. Yeah, it's been my pleasure and always happy to help. All right, great. Well, we thank everybody for listening and until we see you the next time, you can noodle on that. Thanks very much.